Hello and welcome to episode 14 of OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. I'm your host, Ben Pfaff. At the beginning of August, I traveled to Hong Kong to attend APSYS 2016, the Asia-Pacific Workshop on Systems. I recorded three of the talks while I was there, including one I gave myself, which is the one presented in this episode. I'm going to present the other two as future episodes. In the past, people have asked me to compare Open vSwitch to other software switches, both architecture and performance-wise. This talk is the closest that I plan to come to a direct comparison. In it, I cover a key architectural difference between Open vSwitch and most other software switches, and I explain why that architectural difference makes a difference for benchmarks that authors of many software switches like to tout. On to the talk. And our first speaker is Dr. Ben Pfaff from VMware. Uh, he'll be talking on converging approaches in software switches. So Ben is a lead developer of the Open Research Project and led the development effort of the OpenFlow reference implementation. He was a founding employee at NYSERA and is currently at VMware. He received his PhD from Stanford University in 2007. Ben has worked in free and open source software projects, including Debian and GNU for over 20 years. Ben is a senior member of ACM and a fellow of the Open Networking Foundation. I'd just like to add a personal note. Uh, ben and I overlapped a little bit during grad school and uh, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a small uh, hacky thing that I had done. And I just showed it to Ben and one day he came up and said, oh, you know, I polished it up and I made it available to students. So, you know, really, uh, really happy to have him here. He's one of the best hackers I know. So thanks, Ben. Oh, thanks a lot, Saurav. Today, I'm going to talk about how we can combine the, the two main ways that I see software switches working to come up with something that's better than either one. I'm used to giving talks that are based on some kind of a paper that I've written and has been refereed and reviewed and, and already beaten up, but this isn't uh, a paper. This is just some, some stuff that I've been thinking about lately, and I'm really interested in that sort of feedback where people start beating me up and making me think about it harder. Feel free to uh, ask tough questions. I want to start by getting to the point. I've, I've seen a lot of talks where people kind of bury the point somewhere near the end, so I'm going to start with the point, and then I'll explain what I mean. In my uh, experience, there are two main ways that people build software switches, and those are code-driven and data-driven. And don't worry if you don't know what I mean, because I just made those terms up, so you shouldn't. I'll explain a little bit later. Traditionally, if you look at the switches out there, these are alternatives. But I think that we should actually be trying to combine some of their strengths and their weaknesses so we can get the best of both. I'm going to start out by saying a little bit about what a software switch is. My guess is that most people here have an idea, but I think it's still worth making it clear what I'm talking about. So. A software switch is a piece of software that accepts Ethernet packets on physical or virtual ports, and by virtual I mean from a virtual machine, and then forwards them out other physical or virtual ports. And a software switch is more or less needed if uh, virtual machines are going to share physical Ethernet ports, and they've been used for that since I think probably the 1970s at least in IBM's sort of second generation virtual machine monitors. So they're an old idea. And there are a lot of them that exist today. A lot of people have written them. And there's even a number of them developed at VMware. I, I would say probably too many developed at VMware. Uh, we, we should probably merge some of them. But I'm, I'm going to talk about those, and I'm going to talk about some of the others out there. So 
Before I go much farther, though, I want to talk about the sorts of things that I'm not trying to uh, make distinctions on because they're, they're distractions from the point I am trying to make. First of all, people often like to make a distinction between software switches that run in a kernel, like for example the Linux bridge, and software switches that run in the user space of an operating system, like uh, you can run OVS that way, you can run DPDK that way, and switches that run in a mix. That's not my point. There are important reasons to do it one way or another, uh, but it's not what I'm talking about. Second, I'm not talking about the way that people get packets in or out of VMs, which I'm going to call here packet I.O. methods. There's lots of ways to do this too. They all have strengths and weaknesses. You can use a custom kernel module like OpenVSwitch uh, um, often does. You can use the AF packet sockets that have been there in, in Linux and before that in BSDs uh, for practically forever. And you can run uh, DPDK to go in user space directly to a device driver. Or you can even run it in the kernel. That's something that uh, VMware is experimenting with, running uh, DPDK inside their, uh, their ESX kernel. Or you can use something like NetMap. Those are important for performance, but they're not the sort of distinction I'm trying to make. And I just want to add a, a note there that it's, in my opinion, unfair to compare uh, software switches against packet I.O. methods. But you often see it, especially in early um, announcements about new packet I.O. methods. If you look at the original work on NetMap, if you look at some of the uh, original comparisons of DPDK, they compare them against OpenVSwitch when, in fact, what they were measuring for their packet I.O. method was just the raw packet I.O. performance and, and not any of the uh, actual uh, hard part in OpenVSwitch, which is figuring out what to do with the packet, not actually getting it there. Now, let me explain, let me go back and say what I mean by code-driven and data-driven. Let's start with, uh, with code-driven. In a code-driven uh, switch pipeline, what we have is a packet comes in, and then we pass it to some, some function, and then based on the results there, we pass it to some other function, and it might fork, it might iterate, but essentially what you have is something that looks a little like an array of, uh, of function pointers and it goes from, uh, from ingress to egress uh, just by calling uh, functions and passing a packet to them. Now, this, this method is really, really obvious. In fact, if I was presented with this, I'd probably say, duh, yeah, you can build a switch that way. And it has a really nice advantage that there's loose coupling uh, among all of these functions. You can easily plug in third-party code as one of these functions, and none of the code really has to agree on much except for what struct do you use to represent a packet. If we dig in uh, a little bit farther and look at just one of these, uh, these stages in our uh, code-driven pipeline, if you look at it, it has a lot of power. It can do anything. It doesn't have to do anything. And there's a fairly obvious relationship between the number of stages that a packet goes through and the, the latency of putting a packet through the switch. If you look at my graph here, where the numbers are completely made up, the more stages you have, Fairly linearly, you have uh, uh, more latency. And you know maybe some of those stages are expensive, so they actually uh, cost more, or maybe some are really cheap. But that's, that's more or less what you end up with. In addition, since you hardly have anything that's actually running outside of these calls to the functions, there's hardly any fix per packet overhead, because that's very lightweight to just call a bunch of functions. And that means that if you have a null pipeline, one that has, say, zero stages or one stage, your switch is going to be very, very fast, because at that point, you're just stripped down to the cost of the packet I.O. method. The, the cost of forwarding a packet is the cost of receiving a packet and then the cost of sending a packet. These switches are ubiquitous. There's a Linux bridge, which works more like less like this, and you can layer various things on top of it, like IP tables, like EB tables, and each of those uh, is essentially another function that gets called and will increase the latency of every packet to forwarding. 
a more academic example that's a real classic is Click. Click has a reputation for being kind of slow these days. I don't know whether that just means that it was designed in an earlier time where you uh, optimize for different things, or whether it just means that that wasn't an important aspect of its design. The vSphere distributed switch, or VDS, that comes with uh, vSphere is, it works very much like this. I, I kind of wish that it was open source because it would be a, a really great example of, of how this sort of code is written. It, it calls these stages internally IO chains, and they're, they're really just a, a linear list of stuff that, a, of, of functions that get called on a packet when it goes uh, to or from a VM. There's a, a newer switch that's in VMware's new NSX Transformers product called the NSX Edge switch. And this one was built uh, from the ground up using DPDK and I'll have a little more to say about that later. There's VPP, uh, which Cisco recently open sourced, and that one has a reputation for being very, very fast. I'm not sure whether that comes down to packet IO methods or, or something else. And then finally, a little more research-oriented, there's BESS, the Berkeley Extensible Software Switch, if I understand right, although it's a little confusing because its website says that it's not a software switch, so I, 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 don't, know, uh, I don't know who to believe. This was in the, the official VMware uh, uh, template, and I just love the slide, but I don't have anything to say about it, so I'll move on. <laughs> I've talked about code-driven switches. Now I want to talk about what's almost the opposite, a, a data-driven switch. In a data-driven switch, you don't have your stages as code, you have them as data. In practice, that usually means something like a flow table, which is a series of sort of match action rules, where the match says packets that look like this execute this action on it, and the, the rules are, are ordered so that the one that, that comes first, the, the one that has the highest priority, is, is selected if, if more than one matches. The basic look of, of the thing is, is much, uh, much the same as with the code-driven switch, except that you've got data in each of these boxes uh, instead of code. You also have on the side some sort of a code engine, and the code engine is responsible for sequencing the packets through each of these uh, data stages. And in addition, this code engine at the beginning of the pipeline has to put the packet through some sort of a, a parser that extracts all the headers from it. This has a lot of disadvantages compared to a code-driven switch. For one thing, it's pretty unnatural for programmers to write their programs in terms of these, this series of data tables and rules. Programmers like to write code, and they're good at it. Uh, so why would we do this to them? Second, it's limited by the, the code engine. If your code engine only knows how to do certain things and you want to do something it can't, then you'll have to extend the code engine. And finally, this parsing step at the beginning, that can be expensive, especially if it's parsing fields that, that you don't actually care about in whatever the switch is doing right now. On the other hand, that parsing only happens once per pipeline, whereas in a code-driven switch, often each stage has to drag the fields from it again. So I've listed a lot, of, uh, a lot of disadvantages. Why would you ever build a switch this way? So the answer is that a data-driven switch is something where you can do very effective caching. If you go and you look at my NSDI 2015 paper, it'll uh, give a lot of details on how you can take this whole series of data stages and you can do a sort of lazy cross-producting on them. And what you end up with after you do that is effectively just one stage. This effectively means that you can do very good caching in a data-driven switch. If you have a complex program that has 20 stages in it, that's only going to be a little bit more expensive than if you have a simple program that only has one stage in it. So that means that in a data-driven switch, and if you look at my, uh, 
uh, my, again, totally made up graph here, you, you can see it. Initially, with zero or one stage, it's pretty expensive in comparison to a code-driven switch because it's got these high fixed per packet costs. But as your program becomes more and more expensive, you're finding that you're more and more competitive with the cost of the, the code-driven switch because the forwarding cost has not moved up much. In addition, and there's a paper at USENIX ATC from a few months ago that goes into this in a little more detail, you can do hardware classification offload, which if you have a NIC that supports it, and I'm not talking about super exotic NICs, I'm talking about the sorts of NICs that you find in fairly normal servers, you can make things uh, faster still by putting some of this fixed cost into the NIC. That's the theory. There's only a few data-driven switches out there right now, as far as I know, because this is not a particularly obvious way to build a switch. So Open vSwitch is one example. I know all about that. If you've got questions, I can tell you about it. And then the other one that I know about is MidoNet from MidoKura. And that actually uses the, the Open vSwitch kernel module, although its user space is completely different. So I consider it uh, more or less a, a, a different switch. I've talked about code-driven switches and talked about their advantages and disadvantages. I've talked about data-driven switches and their advantages and disadvantages. Now let's talk about how can we use some of the advantages of one and apply those to the other. Let's sort of review the advantages of, of each class here. In a code-driven switch, we have a low fixed overhead so that if your program doesn't do much, then your packets are forwarded very fast. You also have flexibility so that you can do anything in the switch that you can write a function to do. On the other hand, in the data-driven side, you have low per-stage overhead, so that adding stages has low cost, and you have a common parser. I don't have a complete answer, but I have some thoughts, and I'll go into those. So just a very stupid question. So when you say data-driven, you have data on each stage. What's the relationship between this data? Is it the same data flowing through or each stage? So let's see. Code-driven for each stage, I can't understand. It's processing applied to the packet, right? Oh, right. So the, the question is, what's actually happening in the stages in the data-driven switch? Right. What is data there? Yeah, so the data that I'm talking about is basically the flows. So uh, if, if you're thinking about an open flow-based data-driven switch, then that would be the flows in the open flow flow table. Here's an example. Suppose you have a, a stage in your switch where you uh, put a packet through some ACLs. In a code-driven switch, you'd write a function that applies the ACLs. In the data-driven switch, you would have a flow table that actually represents the ACLs, and the, the, the code engine would, would, go through that to, uh, would go through that table. You can express almost all packet forwarding in terms of open flow-like flows. They look a lot like, they look a lot like ACLs. They're, they're basically if-then type constructions. If the packet has the multicast bit set, then flood it to all the ports. If the packet came in on this VLAN, then only consider the ports that have that, uh, that VLAN trunk. What's the relation between data on the two, let's say two stages, right, one after another? What's the data relationship? What's the relationship between that? The re relationship between stages is just that it's an ordering. So uh, you, you apply one stage and, and then the next. You apply orders of action, right? Action is code. Right. Why I, I have difficulty kind of understand like you have ordering for the data stages. Some action happening each day. Right. So those those actions are, are ones that are, are limited. For example, you might have some actions to modify fields. You might have some actions to skip to another stage. 
you might have an action to do nothing and effectively drop the packet. The actions aren't arbitrary code. The advantage there is that you can have something at a high level that does effective caching. I'm, I feel like I'm not doing a good job of communicating here. Different functions being applied to different parts of the packet. Or, or well, uh, different whatever, parts of the data stream. The stages are applied in order for each packet. Just as for a code-driven switch, each packet passes through these, these sets of functions one by one. When you say data, the data is not the packet. The, the data is the, the tables. The, the data is the, uh, the match action rules. That's, that's a good point. Right. The, the data is, in essence, a program in a restricted form. To get back to where I was going, and I hope people are following. I'm a little worried about that now. <laughs> Just to map the concepts into a concrete implementation, where does P4 stand? Uh, well, you could have a data-driven P4 switch. The, the match action tables are also the data in, a, in P4. Let's talk about if we start from a data-driven perspective. I suspect that a lot of people are saying to themselves that if you've got a, a data-driven pipeline and it's faster than a, than a code-driven pipeline for some specific application, then it means that you didn't do a good job of optimizing your code-driven pipeline. And this is a fairly reasonable point of view. If I've got, say, network virtualization or a load balancer, and I can write this as a bunch of data tables, etc., then and, and that's faster than a piece of code that's specifically written for that purpose, why would that be faster? But I have a couple of data points that argue that, empirically at least, that's not always true. And both of those come from internal to VMware. You may have to take a, a, a leap of faith that I'm actually reporting things correctly. The vSphere distributed switch goes back a long way at VMware. And recently, in the last couple of years, it's been adapted so that it can do network virtualization for our NSX product. Like I said, it's a classical uh, code-driven switch. And what they found was that as they added all these stages written, written in, I think, well-optimized code, because they've got some good programmers there, that the, the latency of packet forwarding got to be bigger and bigger. It was hard to do any sort of uh, direct caching for it. What I believe they've begun doing is rewriting key parts of it in a data-driven form that's looking more and more like open vSwitch and finding that the, the ability to cache there has had a real impact on performance. That's an example of something that evolved in that direction that didn't originally need to have much, much going on. But this other one, uh, the NSX Edge switch, that's something that was uh, written starting a couple of years ago specifically for the application of network virtualization using DPDK and they didn't have any legacy code base so they didn't have to conform to, to anything like that. And still, they found that it was, it was too slow. So uh, again, they've started forming some parts of it into something that looks much more data-driven. That's where I, I believe that data-driven really is faster in important cases, at least in practical cases. So what about the other direction? What can data-driven switches learn from the, the code-driven paradigm? One of the problems with data-driven switches is that we have this uh, fixed per packet overhead. One cause for that is this fixed parser that we have at the beginning of the pipeline. Well, we can adapt our switches so that they only parse as much as is actually needed for whatever's in use in the switch at the time. If it never needs to look beyond the Ethernet header, then there's no reason to pull out fields beyond that. And we started working on that in OVS by uh, starting to integrate P4 support over the last year or so. Uh, that isn't ma in mainline yet, but we're working on it. 
Um, I mentioned uh, earlier that we're starting to look at hardware offload and that it's actually realistic. I recommend looking at the Usenix ATC paper if, if you want to uh, uh, look at that. And on the other hand, data-driven switches are less flexible because you can't just throw arbitrary code into it. Some of the solutions there are to make it easier to integrate code in a way that's compatible with the data-driven pipeline. We've started working on a couple of approaches there. The Linux kernel has uh, some useful building blocks that you can integrate into this sort of a paradigm. So uh, we've started adding support for the kernel contractor, for the kernel NAT. And those are the sorts of things that actually can work into a, a sort of a, a, a flow table. And I, I can explain that in more detail if anybody's interested later. We've also done some work on making OpenVSwitch work well with chains of middle boxes for, uh, for NFE type workloads. Actually, that paper at Usenix ATC was, uh, was primarily about, about that and how, how to get data-driven switches to work better uh, with function chaining. Those are some of the thoughts I've had. I hope that this is a useful categorization that, that people can apply to software switching. And uh, what I really want is to point out that there are these two different approaches and that they originally, to me at least, seemed very far apart. But if they both move in the other direction, we may end up with something better than either one by itself. Thank you. So, I mean, uh, just to sort of uh, carry on the question that was asked earlier, just for a better understanding. Code-driven allows you to write arbitrary code, whereas data-driven allows you to have only certain operators. Is that? Maybe it would help to give a, a sort of example. In OpenFlow, each of your stages, they're basically if-then rules that match on a packet. So you can say, if these bits are set, or if the port number is that, then do something. That can be to set some metadata that you maybe check later, or it can be to push on a VLAN header or to pop one off. But there's a pretty limited set of operations that you can apply. You can't do arbitrary things like, uh, at any rate, the, the, the options are circumscribed. In this example, it's described. What, what's your definition of data? What is the definition of The data that I'm talking about is those match action rules that you install at runtime into the switch. So then what would be the code? The, the code is the C that you compiled. Uh, it's, the, it's part of the switch. From the from these rules? No, no. That's fixed. When you install OpenVSwitch... So the code would be the code that actually examines all of these rules, is that? Right. The code is what traverses these tables. I tend to think of OpenVSwitch as almost like a compiler. The input is what the controller tells it, which is these, uh, these if-then type rules and it compiles those into a, a form that can be implemented quickly, and then when, as packets come in, it, it executes those, uh, uh, those, those commands. So in one figure, you basically show the identical graph, right? You basically replace the code with data. Right, and there's a, there's a code engine off to the right. side. So basically, does that imply your stage is still the same stage? You have the same, like, in in these two different implementations, the stage is the same, and their function-wise is the same. Just how you view it differently, you could have a code-based implementation of that stage, or you could have a data-driven data stage. Is this a one-to-one -one map between the... You can implement the same applications both ways, the same firewall or, or, or whatever. But I'll talk about when you show this example, right? It was exactly identical graph, right? If, does that imply the stage they correspond one-to-one -one in these two different implementations? They 
Easily could, yeah. You basically, I could take a code-driven pipeline and convert each stage into a data-driven version. In, yes, in, in theory. My guess is that there are probably implementation reasons in any specific implementation why you might want to structure things a little differently. So then it's like uh, difficult for me to understand why you should adopt to say, well, data-driven implementation, you will, uh, latency will start with high but it grows slower. It, it's because this code engine that, that's sitting off to the side, it has insight into what's going on, but your compiler has, has no insight into how all of these stages are being strung together and, and doesn't know how to, to cache them. Uh, when, when you have more information, you can make better decisions. So when you uh, group this cross-produce in one stage, do you simply just basically make a bigger table, you put all these rules for each of the data stage into that bigger table? Uh, well, it, it's not as simple as that. If you did that, then uh, you'd have exponential blow-up and you wouldn't have memory for it. But I often think of it that way. It, it's, it's, it's lazy so that only when a packet shows up that, that matches a, sing, a, a certain pattern of rules in these stages, only then do we put it into the, the cache. So that way you don't get exponential blow-up. So the way you represent the data is just in table one? Yes. Okay. What the other method could be called? Is there any other possible method? I'm sure there's other ways to represent it. I, I haven't explored that very much because so far tables seem adequate. Well, if, if you wanted to call it, I don't know, a table-driven or flow-driven, I'd, I'd be happy with that. I, I didn't realize that calling it data would cause so much consternation, but it's, it's, it's good to know. It seems to me that this conversion from multi-stage pipeline, which you're calling code-driven, let's say shorter, shorter pipeline, which, is, which you're probably calling data-driven, can be done automatically by an automated tool? Uh, well, that's, that's what OpenVSwitch does at runtime. It's like, open, as you said, OpenVSwitch is a compiler, right? And it's probably going to find the sweetest spot in this continuum from completely code-driven to completely data-driven. You know, it's going to find that sweet spot. Then, so that, that's already the, the, the thing is doing, right? But you seem to be saying that we need to find a middle path somewhere. So I don't understand what the middle path is. The, the big disadvantage that, that always seems to come up is that people do benchmarks on OBS and with other switches that are code-driven, and they say, oh, for my program that does nothing, OBS is a lot slower. But then they fail to try it with something complicated, and they fail to recognize that there's actual value because they're just using their $5,000 machine as if it was a really expensive crossover cable. And OVS is not optimized for that. It's optimized for being a sophisticated switch that does many stages of work. So that's one of the sort of motivations behind this. Also, it would be very difficult to do this sort of hardware classification offload with a code-driven switch because it, it just wouldn't provide the, the right sort of information. Thank you. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro music in this episode is Drive by Alex Barroza, the bumper is Yeah Ant by Spec, and the outro is Space Bazooka by Kirkoid. All of the music is also licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 unported license. For more information about OpenVSwitch and OVS Orbit, please visit openvswitch.org.